Hello, it's Quintessence of Dust, episode 10. Welcome, welcome, welcome. The 10th episode. So, I've done things a little bit differently today. Um, I realized that when I listen to podcasts, I get a lot of ideas for stuff to talk about during my podcast. And uh, it also makes me think about stuff when I'm listening to it, but then I also forget a bunch of stuff in the middle, which um, is kind of frustrating. So what I did today is took notes while I was listening to my podcast and gave myself some bullet points. So that's that. We'll see how it goes as far as my freeform podcasts are concerned. So, the first category, and if any of you can guess, um, the originating podcast, then you win a sweet prize. Um, that's not, not really, <laughs> I don't have anything to give you, but um, you will be mentioned in the Quintessence of Dust Hall of Fame. For time immemorial, forever. Uh, because, yeah, you can guess what podcast I drew all these from, and if you do, then that, that'd be sweet. It's not that hard if you've listened to it, but. Um, so, in that case, I won't be going deeply into what I listen to. And once again, anyone with any comments, anything, anyone wants to be a guest on Contestants of Dust? Anyone, uh, questions, concerns, recommendations, um, etc. Email me at quintessenceofdustpodcast at gmail.com. I'm on with the show. So, the first category that brought up was the concept of snitches get stitches. And in the source material, the people were talking about, and pretty much is always the case, is that snitches are seen as a bad thing. They're seen as negative. Oh, yeah, you, can, you shouldn't be a snitch. You shouldn't appeal to authority and... Uh, give up something. But the whole premise of being a snitch in the first place uh, revolves around someone doing something that is illegal. Well, illegal or is against the rules of someone who has direct authority over them. And uh, the snitches get stitches part of it is kind of like you're complicit. I mean... It's no wonder why they have laws um, about being a, an accomplice in crimes when, when such things are the case. Um, because they have to create an incentive against people living in quote-unquote honor culture and living by the credo that I'm never going to snitch because um, apparently there's this 
rule that if I do, then um, I get hurt. Which is patently ridiculous to me. I mean, I understand it. I don't want to get snitched on if, if I am trusting someone to be complicit in my bad actions. And nonetheless, can you hardly blame someone for, for doing that in certain scenarios? Like, yeah, they're talking about you doing something that's illegal. And especially if it's like a tertiary power move, which usually it is. It's, oh, I don't have as much authority as the authority, but I have greater authority than you. And I can appeal to a more primal source of authority. So, yeah, if... You don't, if you don't allow my rule, rule breaking to go unnoticed, then I'm going to break the rules of, of uh, common courtesy and hurt you in some way. Um, I just don't get it. It's one of those things that surprises me to hear people who are supposedly open-minded and supposedly uh, no knowledgeable say things like that. Um, and you know, who knows how much of a, how much it was in jest. But still, it's like, really? Snitches get stitches, huh? And granted, like, I've never snitched on anyone. I did, I've done things in my life that have been very difficult for me not to snitch. And like, once you think about the whole concept of, talking behind someone's back or snitching. It's like you realize that people don't really, it's more of an implicit thing. It's not really something that people actually follow very often. I mean, usually when people are talking about someone's talking shit behind their back, it's uh, they're doing it just as much, if not more. Um, and that's what people do. It's, and you don't even seem to realize it when you're doing it. Um, but I used to work for a grocery store and I remember that there were several scenarios where it came down to either I had to snitch someone out or I had to take responsibility for myself. Um, or even, even further than that, it wasn't like we had equal culpability in whatever was being persecuted against. It's... More the sense that I had zero culpability and the person that I'm talking about had great culpability and yet still I wasn't, I wasn't going to like put a name out there for them to have someone because that's something that management does all the time. They, they want to assign responsibility to something and if you come to them with a complaint, they want you to nail someone to the cross in order to get your point across and... Thus, they can persecute that person, and if they find out that it was wasn't as bad, then you were you're at fault. It it gets really complicated. All these power structures and power games that they play. Um, and it's a very fine line, you know. Like the snitches get stitches thing has to be. For the most part, is across the board, as far as authority and position. Like it, it's never like 
someone who's way under you has full has full uh is fully able to snitch and usually isn't seen as a bad thing it's it's only when it's someone who is in the same power dynamic usually and it, that's a formative thought I, don't, I, don't, I haven't thought about that too much but it seems like I'm just saying in terms of let's say well it's all about perceived um, culpability and if the person is, is societally um, is emboldened by their snitching through society, usually there's not a recourse. It's usually the opposite. Um, but still, it's just a weird concept to me. And it's weird how much honor culture exists or doesn't exist, but... There already seems to be these little things that seep through, and even the people who rail against honor culture as much as they can, they tend to uh, utilize the same tenets in reverse, which makes it interesting, because um, it's like, are you doing any better? You're just changing the the category in which we can hold someone accountable for their actions. And it goes back in a little bit into what I said last podcast about how you can never truly be in a position to be like, well, I want to change your actions. Um, and that's kind of like this democratic dream, uh, the idea of having e uh, pe men be equal or pe humans in general be equal is that we all have like a vote as far as truth goes and uh, you can believe whatever you want but the thing is is that the most weight is given to the thing on which people vote the most and that that structure itself is what upholds that side of truth um, which I've talked about at length as opposed to the other side which is personal experience. Um, and that, that's how the two are combined, really, is that the personal experience, you, you know, can be verified strongly or weakly through whatever. But if we're talking in binaries, then that becomes your quote-unquote truth vote. And everyone has this vote that they want to, you know, campaign for, apparently. is well, well I, I believe this, and, you know, I'm going to do actions to try to convince you of whatever I believe. Um, and uh, I've, I've always found that disingenuous, but uh, it seems to be the only way people are fully convinced of someone being fully convinced in an idea. Because if you're doing the wishy-washy, well, you can believe it if you want, and here's the, the opposite, here's the steel man of the argument, and here's also the straw man, it's like, for some reason, that just le loses credibility with people instead of the opposite. Because people want you to steel man all your own arguments and straw man all the opposite. You know, you won't. You, the idea is to be as one-sided and as winningness to the your campaign. 
as possible. And I kind of went off of the subject now, but what else can be said about stitches and snitches? Is there is there a situation where that needs to be true? I mean, it goes into this whole subject of power and control on the um, inexplicit areas where we try to control things, but we're not necessarily outwardly saying, you know, you shouldn't believe this and this because A, B, and C, and this is why I don't believe in that for A, B, and C. It's more like I have this implicit assumption, and I do things subtly to... Uh, try to convince you of them, of their validity. And uh, there's a whole spectrum to trying to convince someone of something from subtly, like there's there's the whole lead by example, which I think is the, the purest form of trying to convince something. But the, the limit to that is that pe people who don't pay attention to that or don't pay attention to other people or so have their head so far up their own ass that they don't even care, then it has super limited availability. You have to assume that people are continually searching for ideas that may conflict with their own and that if they had something that would cause them to change their mind, that they would. Um, and to do the appropriate calculation of that is difficult. Um, and then it makes that position almost untenable. But I still think it's the most pure form. But it has to, it has to be bolstered by people's voluntary um, integration with that sort of truth seeking. The second is the lighter form, which is I have an, an implicit um, idea, which I'm going to uh, subtly, you know. <laughs> it's the thing where. You say something and someone you know, wants to call you out saying, oh, that, that wasn't very good or that wasn't very considerate without actually bringing up the facts of the matter, just kind of this is what should be implicitly assumed. And uh, which the problem with that is that it's kind of a passive form of convincing someone because once again, you have to rely on the other person to accept the 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 volley across the bow as a warning and as a, you know, you, you have to, the other person needs to do calculation in order to accept that fully. And the calculation has to be uh, disentangling what that person meant by what they said and what, what their true motives are. Because oftentimes they, these are intentionally confabulated because maybe the person themselves doesn't have it implicitly or or they assume that the other person uh, won't accept it or won't receive it well. And so they can't just blatantly say something. And uh, this is the problem I have. It goes back into the fiction versus nonfiction argument. And the it's it, I don't even know where to place it anymore. Like it's not a complete mistrust of fiction. But it's definitely like, it's that sort of passive uh, convincing of someone usually. 
I mean, it depends on what your true motive for riding is, but my assumption is that most riders, you know, are trying to put forth a worldview that they want other people to either agree with or conform to. And, uh, and if, if I, the only other thing I could think of is that if the uh, rider is their motive is more to create successful riding, then they have to reverse engineer what most people would take to be that and then provide them with what they want to hear while not necessarily believing it in themselves, which I think is, um, I don't know, once you lose that level of inflection in your writing, then it's almost as if you're not truly engaging with it. And I think that's what makes for bad writing is you have to have a conscious, a conscious engagement with it. You have to want to do it. And usually that want is transformed in the want to stay in, in, in implicit bias that you want to either have confirmed or to be or to convince other people of or to transform it you know there's a lot of different ways to do that i mean but the thing is is that usually when there's a book it doesn't do a 180 right in the middle usually you can tell what the implicit bias is and it carries through like i've never heard of a title that does that and uh, it might even be considered a bad book in that case because the people who were interested in the first part may not even want to read the second part because the second part goes against their implicit bias instead of changing their mind. Um, which, you know, it, in the ideal situation of this, the changing of the mind would be done as subtly as possible. And, uh, and it would actually work. And then who knows? Maybe it creates a consciousness change. That's what I think is the purest form of of fiction itself is to do that to. But then again, it's like you're still veiling it in entertainment, so this the implicitness of it it never becomes explicit, and so you may be causing internal confusion among people, or um, they may not even ex. ex fully understand what's trying to be brought across and even then it's like is it really going to change a lot you know because um, I, I, don't, I don't think that those types of books are at all successful or even pursued for the most part Every, you know I'm fairly well read um, and uh, mo most fiction books I've read don't change implicit bias in the middle they carry through and it, it, it lends the writing uh, to the writing a bit of predictability as well and uh, you know hey that's the entertainment value of it like then it would be t rough to read and it wouldn't be it would cease to be fiction to some degree and then to what to why would you need it to be implicit as exposed to explicit in my opinion so then you get to the third level of convincing, which is the complete explicit convincing, which is, you know, what philosophers in theory do is they try to state an opinion as well as possible in order to convince someone of it because it might not be commonsensical or whatever. Um, and you have to do this, you know, then you are 
<laughs> it's like if when when you hear um, the typical podcaster, um, you know, who's an intellectual who's doing this this type of explicit convincing, they always tend to have a Q and A at the end of their um, the end of their their talks, and this this is to extend the the illusion of the explicit in that they're giving you a chance to kind of deal with the problem in real time and then they'll give you the answer that they supposedly had for it that makes sense of the paradigm they're proposing and and takes what the aberrant form that you've presented them and and molds it into the form that they want to hear um and this this to me is it's a lot better than the implicit um and I trust it a lot more, but it still is fraught with problems. I mean, oftentimes it just gets down into, you know, word choice and grammar. Um, and, uh, who know, you know, who knows what, whether the people are talking about the same thing just in different words or talking about different things in similar words or all the... In, combinations of that and it gets complicated and like I I've talked about this before it's it's once again the whole idea of there's a node of ideas and um, they're all kind of pointing to a conclusion and the when the conclusion isn't quite there um, then that's what the philosophical inquiry the the explicit uh, does is try to bolster that network and then fill in the spots that weren't necessarily there before and then you get that aha moment when it all clicks into place but there's usually a giant web of preconceived um, notions that you've already taken account for and so I don't know how I got to this point <laughs> But those are the three levels of of trying to convince someone, in my opinion. Um, and I suppose that there, the force aspect could be seen somewhere in there as, um, like, the other side of the explicit, like, explicitly saying what you want them to do and how you're going to get them to do it, and positing a reality that you could force upon them that would be highly uh, unwanted, which is probably the lowest form of convincing that's possible because it doesn't affect any actual change. It only... Um, and, you know, I think that's probably why the implicit is almost... The, the fiction part is almost the, the mirror image of that and that the middle is the explicit and then the force is on the other side. It's kind of... Because they're kind of antithetical to each other is the the implicit we're trying to playfully not force you to think of things but maybe if you're seeking for it then that makes it a lot easier to deal with implicit sources because as opposed to being trying to be convinced at all if if you're a seeker if you're a treasure hunter looking for that little tidbit that little scrap of gold um, and then, you know, there's a reason to provide it for some reason, but 
it's complicated and I'd have to go into it further than that. I'm going to go on to the next subject. Let's see, on the list. So the next subject is the mind as a receiver. Now what does this mean? Well, there's kind of this new agey theory that I've heard, and it goes a lot with psychedelics, that maybe our mind isn't creating the world as such, but is receiving signals. And maybe, um, you know, it's said a lot in the sense that if you're on a psychedelic drug, that people experience talking with something or, or sensing otherworldly beings within it. And first of all, I have to say that no one ever tends to bring up the fact that you're on a powerful drug in these scenarios. <laughs> like that seems to be the easiest example, the easiest explanation for why you're hearing voices and thinking of something crazy is because you ingested a crazy drug that causes you to believe things that aren't necessarily true. Oh, great. This is when your podcast studio is in your garage. This is what happens. You get drowned out by a leaf blower. How close are these guys? Are they getting closer? First I thought this was, you know, someone in my family doing this. It's okay. I just, I hate it when you hear extraneous noise, especially now that all the podcasts are not well edited or not as well edited, um, and no one tends to address it. It's like, yeah, we hear what's going on. You can pretend like it's not, but... Man, what was that? What was that podcast I was listening to where someone was making this this point and it's just like, yeah, oh, there's this <laughs> beeping in the background that's blatantly going on. You're like, oh, shit. It's like, I'm going to try to not think of that and try to remember what you're actually talking about, but that's not going to happen. If you just addressed it, it might dispel that for a minute. I think. Hopefully. Hopefully it does, because I want to go back to what I was talking about. Mind is the receiver. So yeah, the, the idea of hearing voices and sensing other worlds and you know, talking with interdimensional beings and stuff, that's gotta be, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the person's trip is on when they're trying to say that, maybe it, they're trying to make it seem like the drugs that they're doing is, is some sort of spiritual thing, you know, Timothy Leary, Leary style, where it's some sort of journey, um, which, you know, I've taken some hallucinogenic drugs in my pa in my time. Um, never like a heroic dose, as it were, but definitely felt the effects. And uh, I can tell you that in those states, your mind is under duress. It's not like channeling something or allowing travel to some interdimensional space. But I have another way to debate the minders the receiver thing because you don't necessarily have to be on hallucinogenics to think that. I've thought it myself. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of the idea that the world itself is a simulation. Is that instead of us being these individualistic nodes where this kind of collaboration that is our avatars and the avatars are given this uh, exponential function 
um, interdimensional exponential function on which our personality rides and everything is kind of happens through us which is kind of an interesting way to look at determinism in another light uh, but I think that's pretty patently false because everyone knows that um, our minds are closed systems that we are individuals um, and uh, I don't know if I've talked about the simulation theory before but in short I don't believe the simulation theory is possible because then we have to assume that the world is um, it has to be bottom up simulated meaning from our perspective and they don't waste time on simulating things that aren't necessarily needed to be simulated but such as the, the penultimate uh, ultimate example in my mind is when we hear about physicists and what the, the work that they do and the breaking of the atom and the looking at things. So if it, the, if it were a top-down, which means those things actually do exist within the simulation, then we'd have to assume that what they're saying is, is true to some degree because the world has to be... Uh, if it's top down it has to be consistent and so at that point you have to assume that the simulation takes place at the granularity of the atom or the quark or even lower than that and in which case why ha why not you know that's not a simulation that's called reality and the, whether it's being run on a computer or just happens to be the case because that's how reality has happened up to this point then uh, that makes sense. Um, but I, you know, I don't believe that that's possible because like I said, there, maybe it is, maybe that the world is actually the world and everything is simulated from the, from the bottom up and, or from the top down rather. And everything is, um, a philosophical robot except for yourself. That's the only way it can make sense. Otherwise it's a bottom up and it, you know, there's no physicist doing any of these calculations and there's no atom um, unless you happen to be that physicist and then, then there's a, a situation that is that granular um, but other things are compensated for and that's how it accounts for redundancies within the simulation um, and I don't think that's, that's possible either because then um, you know that you're once again assuming everyone else is a philosophical robot, and <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I just have the sense that that's not the case, um, and that that the bottom-up example is like the Truman Show example. It's like creating a world based on a singular intelligence, and so then you know that's that's egotistical thinking itself because you're the center of the universe. And what is the universe or whatever the simu simulator is going to gain by running your mind through this complex simulation? Um, then we get into Nick Bostrom's superintelligence, which, first off, I just want to talk about his assumption that we live in a simulation because if we posit that simulations are possible, then there's far more simulations than there are real worlds and that probability wise um, we would have to be in a simulation probability wise like a 
a quadrillion to one chance that we're in a simulation versus in the real world. In the real world, and that that's also assuming that our timeline is being uh, reconstrued, all uh, the matrix, and that we just happen to be in this timeline because it's the most convenient to simulate for whatever reason. And I just don't believe this either. Um, I don't. I don't. I think that that the appeal to a probable probability is like a non sequitur and almost a tautology in itself. Uh, so that makes it difficult for me to, to make sense of it. But And then we, if we go into p different parts of this theory where he posit, he looks at this the universe and the future creating these simulations and having uh, planetoids that are just filled with what he calls computronium, which is just a sim simplified version of um, or not simplified, but uh, not extenuated to its furthest degree, because obviously it's beyond the scope of what we have right now. But is is that we all live in these simulations, and then there's planets that are just composed of basically giant computers that will run this simulation for us. Um, because then, you know, once again, if you get into the top-down model, um, there it says that to accurately portray every you know, I don't, I don't know what the scope is, but essentially it would take a universe of co computation to accurately compute um, certain things, not to mention the entire universe itself. Um, and uh, that's just not plausible in itself. Because, um, you know, unless the, the, the world outside the simulation doesn't at all append to physical reality as we know it, and that the physical reality as we know it is just a simulation in itself. And then it's like, what? What is real? Like, why do we have, I don't understand why we have this um, iterative process through our intelligence to get to higher levels of technology. It just It seems far uh, more likely in my mind that this is the real world and that perhaps one day that the simulation by percentages thing will be true because there will be more simulations and that we can just plug into a, our consciousness into a computer and no longer live as we were, which is kind of like the, the natural conclusion of video games is that if we can gain, if we can, you know, if we can plug in with our consciousness into something that's so archaic, you know, and I've done it myself and, you know, it seems like there's a sliding scale between that and when things become more graphically real, you get more sucked in. Although I don't necessarily agree with that. We, I think that, that has, we have that illusion because um, the graphics of video games have increased at the same rate that uh, the innovations in gameplay has. I think it's really the gameplay. It's like a book that get you into the flow state in video games. But just the fact that it is possible, you can you can imagine that there would be a simulation where you no longer even need to think about your body in the real um, that and you know that's who knows if that's even possible like we assume it is because there's all these uh, science fiction accounts of perhaps you know and it seems logical and yeah we can jet plug into things and but the problem with that is 
is that, like I said, there's certain there we haven't the sight and hearing part is pretty, you know. Luckily, that's the easiest thing for us to to uh, appeal to, and also luckily for us, it's the two things which take up the largest part of um, what's the term. They're the senses that have the largest percentage of our conscious attention. Um, it's, uh, dang it. I can't believe I'm spacing on this. It's a little golem thing that's created by wizards. Uh, I'll remember it at some point, but, and I don't even remember who said it. I'm pretty sure it was Sam Harris, but. Um, they used to create models of, of these little creatures, but they would be based on the amount of synesthetic, uh, attraction we have through certain senses. And in this, their eyes and ears would be massively in proportion, disproportionate in proportion to their other senses, because that's how we absorb the world. Um, crap. Well, I'll remember at some point. Um, but yeah, once we, once we talk about the sense, the feeling sense, like how, do, how do we do that? I mean, that, that the only way it seems possible is to find a direct machine brain interface, which, um, you know, Elon Musk has talked about before, um, that that's right on the horizon is creating things that create direct brain interface without having to have the intermediary of a technology such as like a TV. We could just have a wire in our, a chip in our head that, you know, oh, I want to watch this movie and suddenly our visual field becomes whatever we program it to be. And that, that would have to be, you know, I, I don't, it doesn't even seem like that's possible to some degree. Like who knows if our biology can even interface in that way or if we can come up with, uh, and of course we look at this, this fading line of technology, like everything is possible because we have infinite time, but there are more considerations than just time. Um, it has to have some bearing within this societal structure, um, to be implemented. I mean, if video games weren't entertaining, we probably wouldn't have VR at this point. We probably wouldn't be further down that road than necessary. Like, it has to be integrative, convenient, and entertaining at the same time. So I don't think, in, in short, I don't think the mind is a receiver. Our minds are enclosed systems. Which would also kind of dispute the idea of God, because if, if God existed, then we would have to be receivers of some sort. Because um, then, you know, well, we talk, what's the this qualities of God? Om, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. Um, it'd be, the omniscience would be far more important than the other two things in that case, because... He would have had, had to have set up a system in which he can understand the future perfectly and so design uh, humans in, in the perfect way to 
attend to that future where they could be self-enclosed systems. Um, and the difference between that and determinism in my mind is that there is no purpose and determinism and the reason why I have consciousness at all and the, the impetus of evolution period is that we have to continually adapt to change. It, that nothing was predetermined and, you know. So the next conversation, <laughs> oh boy, this is where we get into some weeds because uh, this goes back into my conspiracy theory days and that's always a loaded term. Um, let's see how to talk about this. So we're talking about MK Ultra. Uh, and whether it's possible to make mind puppets. And uh, there seems to be this collage of traits that seem to go together. And if they did in a certain way, I can see it happening, but I just don't know enough about it. First off is the idea of hypnosis. Um... Who knows to what degree hypnosis is, is a placebo effect? Uh, because it, it seems to be the people who don't believe it are the least susceptible to it. I feel like if someone tried to hypnotize me, they'd be largely unsuccessful because I feel like the way you can be hypnotized only is if your mind can be integrated in that state. In that, you know, there's all, all the examples of pop hypnosis that we see are people sitting in chairs in front of crowds and so there's a lot more stress on the person than just oh i'm there's a guy talking in a soothing voice and swinging a uh, a clock back and forth that somehow puts me in this trance state i think a lot of it is performative a lot of it is um you're in this state, you're sp expected to act a certain way, and it's kind of like uh, the appeal to uh, to being contemporaneous. Um, and so you don't you don't want to go against the grain. You don't want to be the person to end the the thought process. Um, it's like the impetus to improvisation, because that's very similar. It's improvisation. The, the first rule of improv is to not say no, right? You want to you want to agree and and let the the illusion continue, because once you disagree and close off the the loop of consideration, then there is no more there's no more consideration. It's just like oh, you don't believe this, I do, and what you know. Then you have to appeal to something else other than trying to convince me um, and I think that's what hypnosis does in this in a very similar way is that you're sitting in front of a crowd the person wants you to do certain things and even though they may seem may seem insane um, for someone like you know bark like a dog whenever you sit here some name or something and then and then, you know, they know that what the act is. They know that they're supposed to pretend like they didn't know what was happening to them when it happens. Um, like I said, it's 
it's hard for me to personally verify it just looking from the outside having never been hypnotized or tried to hypnotize these people myself but it seems like there's certain things that I you know like the the whole idea of uh, Cus Diamato um, hypnotizing Mike Tyson to allow him to become what he became um, and it's like it, it, how did that happen like and so maybe it's not just the fact that because there are there I feel like even if I was in that situation and there's a crowd of people's expectations heaped upon me that I would still go against the grain and say no this isn't true and I'm not being hypnotized sorry that we can't have the show go on um which actually I think I was attempted to be hypnotized once when I was in high school and it just didn't work at all um in the same manner and he probably, I think he had a row of like 10 students and I think one of them was uh, being hypnotized. But when you go into the MK Ultra, then how this connects to the whole MK Ultra thing. And I guess if you don't know what the MK Ultra thing is, I better explain it a little bit. MK Ultra is a CIA program that was made to make people programmable uh, like a Manchurian candidate. Um, and if you haven't seen that movie, what it means is have someone do something without knowing they're doing it and ha without having them be um, aware of it. So the the whole theory is that it's a lot like hypnotism, and that's why I brought it up, is that, um, and that's what we assume hypnotism to be at the end of it, is, you know, you'll have someone sitting in a room next to a, a president or whatever or some authority figure, and person won't even know that they're dangerous or any and no one around them would know and so they're not perceived as such but that just makes it the perfect um, weapon in that sense because then they're loaded with some sort of uh, key which is usually a phrase or an action or something that happens to them that causes their mind to go into the programming mode and switch off and become and do exactly what they're intended to do. And uh, I think what the if if you're if you think this is at all possible, which I don't know, I I honestly don't. Um, like I said, if I disbelieve hypnotism, it's hard to believe that that can be taken one step further and uh, can be done iteratively over, you know, because essentially hypnotism is exactly that process. And so MKUltra is like the idea of weaponizing hypnotism inside people. Um, and what I'm trying to get at is the idea of the dissociative state that... And I don't know the efficacy of that. But it seems like it would be the only only ways that some people have are more prone to dissociation and other people's aren't. And the more you're prone to dissociation, the more you um, are able to, you know, be a good actor or to change your, you know. It seems a lot to be like schizophrenia or multiple personalities. Like there's other things within you that you can flip on and off. And dissociation is like the ability to be two people at once and to have, and then MKUltra is to take a dissociative personality and make a schism that's so great that the 
the two personalities become completely decoupled. Um, gee, I don't know. I don't know. It seems wacky. So you get into the whole idea of Charles Manson um, being a supposed Manchurian candidate, um, LSD being a catalyst to dissociative states, and perhaps there was this whole thing where they felt like they could use these powerful hallucinogens to give people dissociative states, which then they could activate the Manchurian candidate aspect um, more easily. And, like, I would have to do some serious research on whether I could disprove that. But I certainly don't believe that it's possible. Um, but it's hard to say without having any direct, explicit experience in that zone. But then again, it's something fascinating to me. It really is. Um... Because if that were possible, then any sort of governmental subterfuge is, is in theory possible. So let's go on to the next subject. Huh. I don't even remember what this one was about, but what I wrote was rich slash poor expectations. All right. It's just kind of an interesting question to me to consider how different, like, how much, how different are affluent people to people who don't have that ability? They seem to have the superpower, and anyone who could get to that level where they just have more money than they can possibly spend. Um, then you have all these weird habituations and um, because you know things, you've done things that other people haven't done. And when you're poor and when you're the uh, possibilities are limited, extremely limited, then you're stuck in this self-imposed bubble. And so how well does this like deal with intelligence? Is it possible for someone who is poor to be as intelligent as someone who isn't, who is rich? Um, that's a tough question. Um, it goes a lot into what I said about the ascetics and narrowing the aperture of survival um, because that's essentially what you would have to do as a poor person to reach that same level is you have to get to the point where you're hedonistically fulfilled enough that you can attend to esoteric thinking. Um, and that, so there, there, there's two, there's that two-sided coin, there's hedonism and discipline. Or I don't even know if discipline's the right word, but um, more like, mm, Sadism? <laughs> I don't know. Yes, that you let the things that don't matter truly slide. That line from Fight Club once again. 
And I think it's possible, but I don't think it's probable. I think it's a lot. People who... People who are affluent to that point either go to two different sites. They get to that point where they have to move orthogonal to the whole hedonistic process in order to wrap their head around the whole thing. Or they have to have a program of hedonism that allows them to self-perpetuate until it's extinguished. Which uh, I've seen both sides. Um, but, uh, the pro the, the problem that I have with that is I feel like even if the people are on the side of trying to move orthogonal to hedonism, they tend to appeal to hedonism at the end of the day. And, uh, it's a, it, the thing is, it's a great throwback. And so. These are the problems with these these high level intellectuals that tend to be um, tend to get into problems uh, with their hedonism um, because usually when you create the self perpetuating cycle it isn't it's based on the continuous increase of the impulse of whatever that impulse is and it has to be. Ratchet it up, ratchet it up, ratchet it up until it gets to the point where it's absurd. And then you get into people who do horrible things um, in, the, in, the, in the pursuit of excess. Um, and so, yeah, you're basically living two different lives, and it's hard to ever see where the convergence is. Um, and who knows if there is even convergence and that goes into my final thought which is the lack of correlation between ideas um, I recently had a talk with my doctor uh, who we were trying to understand the symptoms I've been feeling in terms of what I correlate with it and he said that the Correlations are important, and lack of correlations are equally important. Which I think is something that's lost on most people, in that we don't see the second part, that the lack of correlation is just as indicative of something as the correlation could be. And so, it goes, it goes back into what I was talking about the other day, about politicians not answering direct, explicit questions. They just uh, answer another question that's similar and usually blather on long enough that the person would would be, uh, it would seem improprietous to continue on that line of questioning. Certain, there's a certain pressure that's involved that even the people who want to know like feel awkward. Like, just go on, just go on. Please don't ask that question again. I know they're not going to answer it, and we don't want to make this any more uncomfortable than it needs to be. We got... We have to have this uh, this illusion of uh, of brotherhood and this illusion that there's an utter lack of animosity, period. Which, uh, you know, which anytime you hear, anytime I personally hear a reporter when they're saying something that might be deemed an, uh, as animosity, it makes me uncomfortable even if I am on their side for some reason. 
in that is there any way that we could do this in a way that's that doesn't uh, engage that and uh, I don't think so I think that there's certain things where you have to you have to be the the bad guy um, in order to make a point um, and so some sometimes there's there's times where people are talking about stuff and they don't draw correlations and it it seems like that to me is um just as indicative of something as opposed to them saying it cuz obviously you know you want to extinguish that animosity that feeling of tension as much as possible and so when there is a correlation you want to at least touch on it, you know, like I was saying about the, the background noise earlier, that the lack of correlation seems to, if I didn't say, oh, look, that leaf blower, God damn it, when you, when you clearly hear it over the mic, then there becomes the anti-correlation, which is, um, I'm just not going to even approach the fact that this isn't a, beautifully edited and controlled environment and that somehow that lends um, lends a lack of credibility to what I'm saying to some degree um, and that correlation itself is illusory but it doesn't mean that it's any less real when we're talking about it just like that lack of a animosity and the tension like doesn't make it any less real um, even though I personally disagree with it it doesn't mean that next time it happens I'm not gonna feel that tension because I will um, what it means is we have to think about it realize it and find some way to deal with that um, and how would you deal with that who knows I mean obviously one way is to have like a disclaimer saying that uh, animosity is intended or you know a lot like um the illusion they do in the ufc that after every fight the guys are they hug and they you know they're happy for each other even though it's just an act but the reason why they're so powerfully compelled to do that is because it brings the illusion that um this is just for money you know they there wasn't no real animosity there there was only um the fight and uh that's why when people play on that, when people try to be the, the heel, um, it, it adds to the tension. And people want to see that tension resolved. And sometimes it ends with people resolving it because saying, oh, it's all, it was all illusory anyway. And that lends itself to the credibility of the UFC itself. Or there's people who, you know, very rarely are still an have animosity afterwards and then you realize that, that it isn't, that it can't, that our emotions can't be uh, boxed in so perfectly. Um, and so it makes me, when I hear that, when I hear people have these parallel conversations that never converge, and never address the correlation, there's unfortunately always an assumption as to the lack of correlation 
as opposed to correlating it. And so, um, and you just want to have that, you know, uh, knowing it's just as illusory as anything else that I've been talking about here, but that it's real and that there needs to be some way that it's dealt with in real terms as opposed to just pretending that it doesn't exist. Um, and I think that has to do a lot with the goal of progressing society, which, you know, we could talk about human progression in terms of technology, um, in terms of culture, in terms of, um, of number of things, but as far as societal breadth and how society works, it's been fairly the same. I mean, when we look at a Greek play or, uh, you know, the Odyssey, we can imagine ourselves in that place if only uh, the extreme ancient and rudimentary level of technology and, you know, that's why camping can be so addictive is because we take a step back and realize that the people who lived in those rudimentary times are us. We are the same people. Um, but one of the things that makes it so easy to do that and to have that illusion is that the society has, has, or has not progressed at all. Like, um, and that's essentially one of the main goals I have is to progress society, um, to move on to realize uh, things that we can do that are going to be inclusive to everyone. Um, things that we can do so that the evil, the or quote-unquote evil, the bad things that are produced that make us feel powerless and uncomfortable, that we can deal with them as, as well as we can. And I understand that these are the, the toughest things to deal with. Um, from people because they're not so because our, our whole identities are wrapped up inside of our societal image um, which brings me to the plug for my next podcast because this is just about at the end the next podcast is going to be my third chapter of Apothegems of Anachronism which has to do directly with this idea of image versus identity. Because there's, for me, a very clear distinction between the two things. And uh, image is how we posit ourselves socially to the, to the outside world. And identity uh, is how we're posited to ourselves. Um, and we'll have more on that later. Thank you for listening. Have a good day. This is Apothegems of Anachronism. This is going to be the next one. This is Quintessence of Dust, episode 10. And I believe I'm going to call it Snitches Get Stitches. <laughs> Have a good day.